Hey, how's it going? Champagne Sharks. Uh, this is Trevor. Find us on Twitter at Champagne Sharks. That's one word. Also, go to patreon.com forward slash Champagne Sharks. Become a subscriber. $5 a month to get access to double the bonus premium episodes. So you get eight new episodes a month instead of just the four free ones. And you get access to about probably at this point, 120 back episodes that will become unlocked to you instantly. So that's a ton of content you get just by signing up. Also a voice chat server called Discord for the show. And one of the benefits of that, in addition to just talking to other like-minded fans, you get previews of which guests are coming on and you get the chance to offer questions to ask the upcoming guests. So unlike everyone else who just finds out when the episode comes out, you get to know who's coming and you get a chance to offer them uh, questions like our uh, wonderful guest today, who I'll be asking some of your questions to, uh, Yasmin Nanton. I'll let you pronounce your name. I always, I'm, I'm always afraid I butcher it. I'm always afraid of, if it's okay. Nair in there. It's Nair. It's Nair. And it's, Na- it, I used to tell my students, uh, I think if they pronounced it Nair, I said, fine. You know, I'm the heir to the hair removing cream <laughs> industry. Yeah. It's an old joke. I apologize to your listeners. I think they heard me make that joke last time. <laughs> Sadly, I, I butchered both my, <laughs> I did Nair and I did Nair, but it's, it's not okay. Nair. It's not, it's hard. It's hard. It, it's because because those sounds just don't exist you know i think in i think in certain yeah i mean i it just it's not a common sound or a way of pronouncing it that really exists in the english language as it were you know and i don't know if that's even how it's pronounced in kerala where my people are from <laughs> that I happens mean, too yeah. <laughs> you know i think in kerala i think it's actually might sometimes be nayar uh, or Nair, I don't know. Who knows? Yasmin is fine. I, 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 you know, I uh, I understand your conflict because my when I correct American people about how to pronounce my last name, even though I'm giving them my approximation of the French pronunciation, I know in if I was in France, I would get uh, laughed out of the room by by my uh, correction. So it's like like I know that I have not uh, mastered the French pronunciation really that well myself. Yes. Yeah, so. Who does? <laughs> yeah, it's the true, French it's true. are so snotty and sort of parochial about their language. No one can master it. That's true. <laughs> I'm trying <laughs> to learn French right now, so I understand. <laughs> oh man, it's it's the worst. It's the <laughs> most. Uh, you know, I've been trying to find a discipline that covers this. Um, mm. I knew this one guy. He was kind of a crackpot, but he would talk about this. But he has this kind of thing about. Um, I mean, what he said was very um, convincing, and I wanted to find like, literature about it, but I couldn't. But he had this whole theory. He was an acting teacher. He had this theory mm-hmm. that the way that like a certain country's language is constructed mm-hmm. dictates how they think. So it's like, and I guess vice versa, like, like the way people think uh, dictates how the language evolves. So he has this thing like, you know, like, for example, like Finnish people are like a very tough, Viking, <laughs> gruff people. And the, the language sounds like very rough and uh, choppy and like from the gut. Basically, like French. The language has so many exceptions and rules and like 20 verb tenses and all this stuff <laughs> that you have to stay very much in your head. So, so he had this idea that different languages come from different parts of the body like because mm. you use different parts of your body to uh, speak the language. So like some mm. languages come from like your gut because they, they have a lot of grunting and sounds. And it's like French is like it's all like 90 percent from your head. And, mm. and he was like, that's why French philosophers are. Uh, impenetrable and convoluted because mm. the language is huh. yeah I mean, it's not interesting it's not interesting stuff and then mm. uh, 
he claimed like he came up with this theory. I said, there's no way you did. But then I, I looked it up and I cannot find any no. discipline or writing about this. Yeah, so I, I'm, sure they, I, I'm not sure about that because I feel like I can hear, you know, old colonizers. I can hear, for instance, hear French colonizers talking about, you know, say Indian languages or African languages and saying, and making these kinds of distinctions of, you know, oh, well, this is, oh, these are, these are animalistic people. So their language sounds animalistic to us, right? So. Yeah, no, I, I see what you say. I, I see what you're saying, but uh, he was actually, what he was trying to say was that um, he wasn't saying animalistic. I see what you mean, but he wasn't saying that. Interestingly, he was talking about other uh, Scandinavian, he was Scandinavian, he was talking about Scandinavian people. Finland. He was actually saying as a pejorative against French people. <laughs> because he didn't like French people. He said like they have no bass in their voice. They're very they they have no uh, bottom <laughs> to their language because their, lang their language is like unanchored. It's uh, mm, up in the air in the clouds. Interesting. <laughs> but uh, what I wanted to talk to you about was something uh, you were on uh, Jessica Crispin's podcast and former guest of the show as well. And you guys were talking about writing the life of, uh, what would you say the episode was? Like the modern reality of, of writing? and Criticism, I think, is the one, right, that you're referring to, the, the role of critics. Um, yeah. Right. And how critics have generally abdicated their responsibility to actually be critics. So I think, yes, I think we've both been critics. I think Jessa has been actually a critic longer than I have, perhaps. I'm not sure. But we've both been critics. Uh, you know, uh, I've done a lot of book reviews and a lot of film reviews, some TV. I know she's, we've both been critics for a very long time. And uh, it does seem, uh, it seems to me that these days, criticism, which is to say, you know, film, uh, not critical off, but, you know, like film criticism, TV criticism, literary criticism, a lot of it has to do, first of all, there's this weird tendency, something that you had pointed out in our conversations prior to this, where you know, we talked about how a lot of writers now, even when they're evaluating work or even doing interviews, tend to insert their own lives into works of criticism and it's deeply annoying. I'm not sure if it's, I think it's sort of a new trend, but not quite. There was a moment, you know, and I think what in the 50s, 60s, when all these white men were running around doing that. <laughs> yeah, if it's not new, it's at least way more, if not tolerated, even encouraged, yes. E yes. even by, the, even by like, the fans. Like a lot of fans want yes. this from the writers. I feel I like. I don't understand it, man. I really yeah. don't. I was reading, I love the Chicago Reader for mainly because a lot some of my friends are involved with it but there was this and i meant to write to them so you know uh jessica i love you please don't hate me for saying this but um but there was this essay about in recently in the chicago reader a little while ago about um this indian american woman who is part of the patel family if anyone cooks indian food especially in an urbanish area or you know that you where you go to get your Indian groceries mostly is at Patel Brothers, which is a relatively new entity. It started, you know, it's a grocery chain basically, and it started in the 1980s, I think. So this essay was about, supposed to be about the woman whose father had begun this business, um, and so much of it was about the writer's own background as an oh, Indian American God, yeah. in the suburbs. And I'm like, I really don't give a shit. Especially at this point in time in 2019, when India is roiled, right? Is India is being torn apart by all of this horrible fascism in in terms of Narendra Modi. You know, there are all these other interesting contexts that you could bring to bear upon this 
very interesting grocery chain and the account of its history. I don't give a shit about how you felt walking down the street on Devon, you know, in nineteen ninety nine. I don't care. And, and even worse is when they try to uh, take it back to their childhood trauma. Oh, please, which, which is give another me a very break. common thing. Like you know, oh, trauma is I, yes, trauma yeah, is a badge. Yes, as yeah. I you know said this and that. It brought me back to my childhood oh, growing up. And I was like, oh, God, just like, why? Oh, shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck yeah, up. Like, yeah. I don't care. Do you know how to write? No, you don't. All you know how to do. And I think I blame so much for, there's so much blame to be placed um, in so, on so many people and places for this. But I do think a lot of it has to do well with, I think, a general kind of readerly, quite frankly, and readers don't like this, but I always put the blame back on them. I'm the one of those rare writers yes. who actually likes to say, listen, readers, you guys are fucking up. And I think readers are increasingly, there's a large, seems to be a larger segment of readers who increasingly just want to devour trauma in this pornographic way. You know, tra- there's this trauma porn that we refer to, but it seems like they don't want to really grapple with the difficulty of external experiences Unless, and this is especially true when they're reading about women of color, I think, or queer people of color, or queer people, period. You know, Nanette is an excellent example. If you won't give me your trauma, I will not listen to you. And as a woman of color who has been on many, many, many panels, I can assure you that I have always been irritated because (laughs) I've always been on a panel and I'll be like the one woman of color on the panel who does not discuss you know, any trauma at all. And I have to sit there and listen as every person on that panel goes through and says, as a, you know, woman who is Native American and passing and who was raped and who was sex trafficked and who did this, I must say this. And it's, you know, and then as an African-American woman who has been traumatized and who, you know, blah, 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 as an Indian woman who was incarcerated, blah, 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 blah. And then they come to me and I just sort of sit there. I'm like, this is who I am. Go read my work. Fuck you. I'm not telling you, you know, I'm not here. Yeah. You know something interesting that, uh, trope that we were talking about before the one that you uh kind of tied into the story about the french i think there is this kind of idea by a lot of white people you know the same way white people claim like you know they'll say oh i have no culture you know or we have no culture but it's like no you have a huge culture it's just it's so default and normative that you don't even think of it as a you have the luxury of not thinking of it as a culture you think of it as like neutral like you know, but it, but it's not like you know you have a culture. You know, it's, but similarly, like I think they look at the same way that guy was looking at French language as like in the head, which to a degree it is. I think they've made a conscious choice at some time, like in you know that age of Descartes where he said, "I think, therefore I am." I think that was like the epitome of like the white mind, which is like my thinking, my mentality makes me what i am that's what makes me human and i think they think that's what makes them human but i think that's all they also think that's what makes them more human than everyone else i think they think of themselves of all the races and peoples as the people of the mind more than anyone else and Uh, i I see where you're going yeah i think by virtue of them placing themselves in that role and they have a certain amount of pride in it i think it's doubled back around to becoming like an embarrassment or a prison for them where now they think, wait, do we have anything besides this? And it's like, if we're the pe- if we're the people of the mind, like, like the white people, then everyone else must be the people of the, the feeling of the. Mm, I see what you gut, mean. 
the mm. suffering. And I think it becomes this kind of thing where we start forming that role for them. Mm. Like, you know, mm. uh, we want to reintegrate how to feel. And, you know, you guys are all dopey. You guys are all dumb. We're, uh, we're the smart people. But, you know, you have value too. Show us how to feel in all this mm. other stuff that we uh, kind of threw to the wayside, which is still at the end of the day, less important. But we kind of feel like we needed to become mm-hmm. uh, complete people. And there's a certain type of like female or person of color writer that doesn't really count either they don't get the insultingness of being given that role or they just want to strive and climb so i think they don't care it's like hey if you want me to be that you know it's it's, it's like a sex worker where it's like hey you're the client this is what you're paying for i'm here to please you whatever you know i feel there's something there i don't know if these writers understand that they're kind of leaning into this kind of racist trope And just don't care or, you know, like, for example, the slave play guy, I hate to keep coming back to this guy all the time, but he basically (laughs) admitted in an essay Mm. that he wanted to be like an Abercrombie type Mm. of Mm -hmm. gay guy. He wanted to be this kind of uh, white twink, like the way all his friends were. Oh, yes. I remember reading that. Yes. Yeah. But then he tried to dress up like that and he realized he looked ridiculous and he realized that he would never be successful looking... white twink he would never be or he would never be a good white person but he could be what they want him to be which is like uh an expert on black stuff so mm-hmm. he basically admitted like he leaned into his blackness just to get accepted by white people he played up the difference the contrast mm-hmm. and this is just a very cynical essay and uh what? it was interesting that he wrote that essay and it's kind of like a, a con artist who tells you they're gonna con you before they do it he writes this essay then he doesn't they need a slave play and no one makes a connection that this guy just basically admitted he's only in this to get loved by for white people and he minds black culture and learns it as a performance to uh you know get mm-hmm. white approval right. so at least in his case we have one example of somebody who at least uh said the quiet part out loud and admitted mm-hmm. where he comes from with it i think i read that essay i'm not sure but i i think we also had a long discussion about slaves play which people should listen to uh on your excellent podcast but i think the only thing I can say about that, though, and again, I read all of this a while back uh, and I haven't read Slave Play recently, but I think part of the essay was also getting at the conundrum in which people of color, especially black men, I think, find themselves, and especially black gay men find themselves. And in which case, the only way to sort of write or think or get the world to think about that is to write something which draws upon all those complications around what it means to be black, what it means to be black and sexual, what it means to reenact, you know, white desire, black desire, et cetera, in those, within those crosshairs. So I'm not sure he was necessarily, again, to be perfect. And I, 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 I guess I, I'm not, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think I'd like to move on from that because I haven't read it in such a long time. So I yeah, can't yeah. really I'm, I'm, say, but I mean, I that particular, what, ex- yeah. yeah, that particular example is not that important so much as but the I broader think, question of why do other why people do, do it? I think, I think there are a number of, I do think that, yeah, I think what you pointed to is exactly it, which is that it makes money, to put it bluntly. I think, you know, there's this recent controversy around American Dirt, uh, this novel by, well, a woman who says she is Puerto Rican, and then she says she's white. Anyway, the whole controversy is the fact, idea that she is seen as white. There have also been charges of plagiarism. But she writes, you know, she's just wrote this novel, which has just become the best-selling novel on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, and she wrote this novel about a very sort of apparently lurid set of uh, stories, you know, the typical stories, right, that you expect to read about immigrants and Mexican women and their children and sex and all of that. 
And so there's been a lot of criticism about the fact that she's white and she's essentially appropriating and exploiting sort of Mexican and immigrant trauma, et cetera, et cetera. But I think, uh, and then the question becomes though, for me, what's been interesting is that no one has actually talked about the publishing world in a way. I mean, they have, they've said, how dare they pay her all this money she made, I don't know a million or two or whatever, you know, some exorbitant amount. After, after the first four, zero, five zeros, my mind can't really comprehend very much. Yeah. But, she, but she made a ton of money and so everyone's outraged that she made all this money, exploiting, blah, 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 blah. But then that brings the question. Yeah, and there's a weird hang up about the money that kind of disturbs me. Can you, thank you for bringing that up because that also irritates me. And we'll, to get, yes, let's dwell upon that. I think the thing, you're absolutely right. It really pisses me off when it becomes so clear that people are, they talk about the money because they're pissed off that someone made more money or someone made a lot them, of money. Yes. And I'm like, listen, okay, I will be the first to say that when Lena Dunham got $6 million or some ridiculous amount for a nothing book proposal, Gawker found her book proposal and it turns out to have been nothing but pages from her personal diary, right? And it's a shitty book. I've read it. She got $6 million. So I'll be the first one to say, yeah, okay, look, why the fuck are you giving someone $6 million? They're never going to recover that. This sets the publishing industry into a downward spiral, which is kind of where it is right now. I will be the first uh, to say it irritates me and that's a problem. Mm -hmm. But I think we really, but I'm always very concerned about articulating my annoyance in those situations because I don't want it to become, how dare she make so much money? Rather, I and, think and, the question become, has to yep. be, what is, this, what is this stupid fucking system where someone Ex is given exactly. so much exactly. money that they will never recover, right? Like, and, and where that's do you get all this too, money about, from? About this whole influencer culture where it's like, everybody just wants to hire influencers, mm -hmm. but 90% of these influencers don't make any of the money back to the point where you think you might as well just take a risk on just talent because right. there's right. no proven... Uh, right. you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like the paradox of we have to hire white established actors because we have to make money, but then 90% of these things that they have these white established actors don't make money. And when you point it out, they'll say... Well, yeah. So can you imagine if we didn't use them? Like these are kind of weird self-fulfilling uh, justification where it's like instead of taking the lesson that, hey, maybe the system of just using the same conventional wisdom doesn't work, they'll double down the conventional wisdom and somehow use the failure as proof of the validity of the system where they say, yeah, you know, you're right. Uh, all these movies did fail. So can you imagine if we actually did take a chance on minorities? Yeah. And it's like, huh? How did you? So when you win, it's a proof that the system works. And when you lose, it's a proof that the system works because supposedly it would have happened even, uh, it would have been even a, a bigger disaster. And uh, But these people, like you're right, they don't want to criticize the system. No. They're mad that they weren't given that amount of money for a mediocre journal disguised as a book. It's not that they want the system to be better or, no. or want more talent to be there. They want... And in a way, I guess there's something almost admirable about it in a way, in terms of its, in a way, this is almost progressive in a way, because they want the, they're, they're like, we're sick of being, having to be twice as good to get published. We want to be as unjustly rewarded and as mediocre as, as right. the white people. Right. I mean, there is that. 
aspect of it. I, I, I think this is also just about how the culture industry at, at large, right, whether it's publishing, whether it's filmmaking, whether it's, uh, you know, journalism, whether it's essays, whatever it is, I think the cultural industry at large is, is, is at a really low point. And unfortunately, the amounts of money that are poured into specific instances only kind of amplify the ways in which it's heading. I think, you know, it is in, in, in a deep, dark morass. I think, but I don't think that people really want to confront that system. And one proof of that is the fact that, you know, a lot of writers, for instance, and, and I write a lot of nonfiction, and I can tell you, you know, a lot of writers, for instance, are still scabbing their labor by writing for places that don't even pay them, right? In the yeah. hope. Like, so for instance, Guernica, uh, places like Guernica, places like the Rumpus, which now, after my having written about them multiple times, now pays, I think, something, some measly amount, like $60 or something, or maybe 100 at the most, uh, some ridiculously small amount. Uh, but uh, so I think a lot of the part of the problem around the culture industry by, you know, as a whole is that people who produce, quote unquote, culture, whether they're filmmakers or writers, whatever, tend to think of themselves as special snowflakes whose work would be sullied if they got paid any kind of money or good money, right? And then they also, yeah, oh gosh, yeah, writers are terrible about this. Writers are completely horrible. Do you horrible. think maybe nonfiction writers? I, I fiction writing is a different oh. thing, but nonfiction writing is filled with scabs. Uh, I can assure you of that. A lot of people whose work appears in, say, the Jack in Jacobin, or it's certainly in Guernica, in many other places, a lot of those people aren't getting paid. Uh, uh, do you think it could be a backwards rationalization as well as in, hey, I'm not getting paid, but I've created this uh, self-flattering fiction around not getting paid? Or do you think they really, like, if there was a chance to make money at this, um, well, what do you think they'll they stick to those principles? No, I think, again, it's about a system where you actually don't, for instance, actually have to, so the right, okay, I can speak to the writing industry best, right? Film is different. Film is different. You know why? Because it's unionized. <laughs> you don't plug in, a, you know, any equipment on a film set if it's not plugged in by a union person, for instance. So that film is completely different. But I can assure you in the writing world, it is possible to be a big name writer without actually having sold a lot of books, without even having... Uh, so I'll give you an ex you know, the best examples are, for instance, if you think about people who write. So what happens is you get, for instance, you get, you become famous for being famous. And then what happens is then you become, you know, if you're a Gary Young and you write what might be a really good book, you get featured, you know, you're, you write about yourself in The Guardian, The Guardian publishes excerpts of it. You are invited to all kinds of places, including Chicago, where I live, right, to present on your book, et cetera, et cetera. You may not make a lot in book sales, but you make a lot in terms of your name getting out there and being attached to a certain kind of perspective on the world. So even if you don't only end up selling, let's say, 1,500 copies, which is low for 
you know, which I, I think is sort of low for, let's say, a trade publication or 2,000 copies, 3,000 copies. That doesn't really matter. You'll still get another book contract. Yeah, right? you, know, this, you know, this reminds me of, we've been calling it on the show, the, the influencer industrial complex, mm-hmm. or just everybody in every industry, you have to become an influencer. And, and like, even in journalism, people told me like for journalism jobs out of journalism school, they'll go to the interview and the people will ask them, what's the social media presence like? Like, like they want to, yes. they want to know. Yes how good you are at social media. And I had a friend who was very upset with how her journalism career is going because she's been doing such good writing for so long and seeing these people pass her. And I said, look, what I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to tell you in a prescriptive way. I'm not going to tell you to do this. But what I'm going to tell you is if you want to maximize your profile, honestly, you're going and I, and even though I'm telling you this, I don't want to call it advice because I don't like the idea of contributing to this world, but this right. is just the world we're in. You're going to have to get better at social media. That's pretty much going right. to be right. going to be it. That, I'm, that's what people want now. People the want the best. Yeah, sorry, but, yeah. but the best <laughs> example of that is a man named Ronan Farrow. <laughs> mm-hmm. Ronan Farrow is no journalist. Ronan Farrow had no training as a journalist, but Ronan Farrow one fine day. I think it might have been, uh, I forget whose birthday, but he tweeted out someone, you know, there were all these speculations about whether Frank Sinatra was his actual father and not Woody Allen. And I think he sent, that at that point, he sent out a tweet that said something like, listen, at some point, everyone is Frank Sinatra's son, you know, something like that. Some, you know, it was an off, off the cuff kind of tweet. It yeah. was moderately funny. And because it came from him, you know, it was sort of funny, right? It came from the man himself whose parentage is basically being challenged. It also came on the heels of all the explosive accounts of, you know, the the allegations of Woody Allen's uh, behavior towards his children and all of that. Yeah. So what happened then was, you know, immediately a a major network uh, boss decided on the basis of that one tweet, this is literally true, decided on the basis of that one tweet that Ronan Farrow needed to have a job as a television journalist. So Ronan Farrow then gets a gets a job he gets a show and i think it was called the ronan farrow job he was an absolute disaster could barely figure out which way the camera was terrible uh the network even gave him a fake a kind of a, like a fake award they gave him the award for best journalism of the year when his show hadn't even started he hadn't done a single wow. piece of journalism this is all on record right and then from there on farrow though because here's what happens, though. He has absolutely no talent. And I'm going to be reading it. I actually am very dubious about the extent to which he actually did any real investigative journalism around all the, um, the Harvey Weinstein uh, cases. But Ronan Farrow ha- already comes into this position with a huge amount of cultural cachet and capital, right? He has a famous mother. He has famous parentage. He comes out of this, you know, the Hollywood strata, as it were. He gets this, you know, this thing that many people wait 30 years to get. He gets an entire freaking show, right, named after him. He's shitty at it. But by this point, he has, you know, both feet into that particular economy. He then cleverly learns, you know, he figures out how to exploit and use that. And from there on, you know, he goes into, I, I haven't tracked his exact career trajectory, but then he becomes attached to, I think, you know, the New Yorker. 
he gets wind of this Harvey Weinstein, you know, Harvey Weinstein uh, story, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Next thing you know, Ronan Farrow, one of the shittiest journalists on the planet, is you know sharing a Pulitzer Prize. And wow, I didn't know he got a Pulitzer. Yeah, wow. yeah, he's sharing. I mean, I'll let, as I speak to you, let me Google this. <laughs> and I, to this day, actually don't. If you look at any of his journalism, it's all shared. You know, he's, he's, it's all. Now, most of these big stories, to be fair, are often um, co, you know, co-written. But, yep, he won the, the it's not he, that he won it. Yeah, the New Yorker won the 2018 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service for Farrah's reporting, etc. He shared the award with the two New York Times uh, writers who also broke the story in their paper. But, you know, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that you can be completely no talentless or at least be not particularly good at what you do but it's really about how you centralize and how you sort of throw yourself right into the middle of a nexus of power relationships right that's what yes. and all of yes. this so i guess the central point i'm trying to make and this goes back to what you said to your friend right which i think you were right about which is to say all of this is on the back of one single fucking tweet no, no, it's it's true. And there's a lot of people like this. They're really influencers. They're not really what they do. And I call it decoy jobs. Like your job is just almost like a decoy. And and like society really hates Kim Kardashian. They get on Kim Kardashian all the time. But in a way, I kind of in a way like Kim Kardashian because at least she's, she's honest. honest. She's like she's, honest. she's not pretending. She's like, yes, taken... my sex tip got me where I am. Yeah, yeah. I'm, and what I love like about just... her is that she doesn't walk it back. She doesn't no, she now. Doesn't yeah, back. she doesn't. No, she's like, yeah, I fucked a man in public, and yes, the co- the tape was accidentally quote unquote. You know, even her mother can't help laughing every time she says, "Oh, the tape was accidentally released to the public." Like it was a complete setup job from the beginning, and they're to- completely open totally. about it. Totally, and and th- there's all this stuff where where people will you know talk will talk about how. You know, she has no talent or whatever. But the example I use is if you look at someone like Jessica Simpson, right? People will not give her the same amount of grief that they give Kim Kardashian. But Jessica Simpson, how many people can name three of her songs? Uh, or even even like one? Like, no one, is it, like, supposedly she's there for being a singer. But, I mean, she had a reality show. Same as Kim Kardashian. She technically had songs. No one knows what the songs are. Uh, uh, nobody knows. I know she had a movie with um, Dane Cook, and she had one with that was Dukes of Hazard. No one watched those movies. She's also right? more famous for her sister now than she is for herself. Oh, oh why? Is your sister pretty I uh, think, big? No, she wasn't. I mean, I think the whole thing was that both of them are sort of... Fa- I, I think I'm getting this right. Yes, Ashley Simpson. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Yeah, Ashley and Simpson Ashley botched... Simpson's nose job. Oh, yeah, she had a nose job, and she botched the performance on Saturday right, Night Live right, and stuff. right, right. That's well, I mean, they're like, more famous for not for being bad at being famous in a way. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. She, she's just basically a lesser Kim Kardashian. Like she's just someone who she like. What does she do? Is different than what Kim Kardashian does. She's famous for a reality show. She's famous for a sex appeal. I mean, she didn't do a full blown um, porno tape, but she's basically she did the kind of the opposite. She was she was her big thing was something that she was supposedly a virgin yes, or something. Right, so, Christian, but yeah. but selling stuff as a virgin is still selling sex because you're selling the promise right. of your untouched vagina to people it's 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 uh it's a backdoor way of still selling sex in a in a way because by by talking about your virginity all the time you're reminding people about yourself as a sexual object but the idea that she has a decoy job kind of insulates 
her from criticism because I, I and think I find the, it yeah yeah sorry no I find it interesting that people in some degree still are uncomfortable admitting uh, influencer industrial complex they they still want to believe that they're supporting uh, heroism or talent even though it's pretty clear at this point nobody gives a fuck about it anymore I, I well what's interesting to me is that what I'm seeing in terms of the influencer economy is oddly enough I think a lot of people actually know that it's bullshit. But what they're hoping for is that they can uh, get a, you know, they can capitalize on the bullshit. So I think I'm thinking about Caroline Calloway, um, who is this woman who was, you know, writing um, about, well, whatever. She was writing about her life, about being an American in Oxford, etc. And then got exposed by her close friend as being a fake, etc., etc. And then what happened was that she began to even... both she and her, you know, sort of her former close friend, both began to exploit even the story of her being exposed itself became part of the influencer economy. And I think everyone watching that knew this, right? But I think there's part of the issue here, I think, is that we also have this weird attention economy and it's sort of gratuitous where we're always watching. It's sort of like watching gladiators, you know, Yes. So I think there's that impulse as well. There's also the illusion of fabulous wealth, which most people don't want to, either they don't know, but you know, there is, a, if you can make it as an influencer, you can technically, there are very few people who can actually do this, but technically, if you know how to get the right endorsements, if, if you get the right brand names, et cetera, you could be making upwards of a million more than that, right? Or yeah, yeah. But, but I think it's very much a long tail. Like It's kind of like yeah. how acting is. Like right. acting, Absolutely. you can make a fabulous amount of money, but for 5%, and yeah. then like 95% are like waiters or bartenders right, during right. the day. And that's what most people's careers look like, or it takes a very long time you know, to get there. I mean, a lot of people, yeah. my own favorite, as you may or may not know, is Jason Momoa. And a lot of people act like, oh, Jason Momoa became big with Aquaman. But actually, Jason Momoa's, the guy's been in his career for about 25 odd years. Oh, for uh, sure. Doing for sure. tiny, I, tiny roles. <laughs> I, I remember he used to be on the show I used to watch called, called The Game, you know. And oh, he, he was on The Game? Really? Okay. Uh, yeah, he yeah. Was he, he was on Baywatch for a while. Yeah, yeah, he yeah he was in the show The Game, and he Aww. was but he was clean shaven. <laughs> right, and he, was just... he was not that good looking with, without a beard. <laughs> <laughs> he he um, it's funny because he pretty much has one mode really as an actor, but I mean, I it, know. It, it's, it, it, it's work for it's work for Keanu Reeves, so why it's, shouldn't it work for him too? Yeah, and you know he's also or, or even Humphrey yeah. Bogart. Right, right. All everyone, right. I mean, you could say the same thing about Meryl Streep, who is not a good actress. You know, she just does the same thing, but then she gives an accent in every different uh, role, and it makes it seem that she's a great actress. But I guess my larger point is that it actually, you know, careers, if you want to, yeah, a lot of careers actually take a very long time to be established. um, And there aren't a lot of people who actually are that successful. But I think a lot of this also has to do with our extraordinarily precarious times, right? The fact that so many of us are struggling, you know, really struggling. And I think this becomes a kind of, this illusion is a fairy tale in some ways that we, uh, that, 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 that we all believe in, that we all think, well, this could be me. So that's one issue. But I think the other issue is also that there is this weird kind of 
imaginary economy, which is real, but also not real, right? It's like a Bitcoin economy of attention, which is to say we are persuaded that, you know, if you can get, I don't know, you know, whatever, cosmetic brand to, you know, if you, if you, um, if you advertise a certain cosmetic brand on your YouTube channel, you could potentially be making tens of thousands of dollars, you know, a week or a month or whatever. But I think that has a lot to do with how money is circulating and how wealth is circulating these days. And I'm not sure, I'm not really explaining. I, I haven't, I'm still trying to figure this out, but there's an illusory economy which, oh, oh, for sure, yeah. for sure. I'll put it in a larger scale mm-hmm. too, right? Remember how, and I say remember like it's the past, but it's not really the past. It's more just normalized. But remember when the, the first dot-com boom happened mm-hmm. and, and how it was so new and novel, this it's idea that y- yep. you have these huge companies, but with no profits. Yes. And everyone was like, yes. and it was like, no, you got to think of things in a different way now. Profits are the old way. The profits are going to come as long as you have the attention and you have the buzz and there were whole industries and websites and dot-com billionaires created off of being profitless like like nobody cared that you didn't have profits everyone just said don't worry the profits are going to come and i was talking about i guess the thing of the past but i realized no it's not past it just becomes so normalized yes yes that i don't notice it anymore but that's the normal way of doing business now there's so yes. many billionaire ceos and apps like like twitter is famously um precarious in its um it is yeah, yeah, but, but it's treated it's yes. treated as too big to fail because that's it has ridiculous. Too, too many eyeballs on it. it. It's so stupid. Twitter is like a complete failure in many ways. Oh yeah, a lot of them are. They went public too fast, so now they have to keep making these regular quarterly reports. And they and once you make quarterly reports, once you're in that cycle, you're not allowed to take one step back to take two steps forward. You, you're in, you're stuck in growthism. You always have to be growing, always growing. And sometimes uh, you have to take a step back but, to grow. And, right. And they can't do that. But the influencer economy, the influencer industrial compass, I think, is that mindset applied to people. It's like if this person is generating buzz, generating attention the same way Amazon was not getting any profits for like the first 10 years. You know, as long as it's happening, it's going to come eventually. Just put them in flop after flop as long as it's still generating. Uh, it's, I think like that's the logic. And when you brought up Lena Dunham, like one thing that really shocked me, I didn't know this, was that Girls was getting no ratings because if you were to go by the amount of buzz she was generating, and I, I think too, a lot of people who write for the culture industry are people who might look like Lena Dunham or might be her age or might live in the places yes, where Yes, someone wrote a set. piece about that even. Yes. Oh, really? I would love to. Yeah, uh, someone actually, I, I don't, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but when you said no, that, it suddenly important. reminded me of like, oh yeah. And I, you know what? The problem is I want to find that piece and I will, I will hunt it down one day and I will send it to you. But basically this piece, yeah, yeah, this piece had like this offhand almost, I think, comment about the fact that Lena Dunham's Girls is popular and these kinds of shows are popular precisely because the people who write about them are also the people who are making the show. So it's become part of this insular economy. Now, to be fair to Lena Dunham, I didn't really watch Girls and I need to at some point. I haven't watched Girls all the way through, but I don't think Girls was, I think Girls got really weird. I don't know. I think what people tell me is season three is what I hear, and that's my sense of it from what little I've seen. I don't think it was a bad show, to be fair to her, okay? So I don't think it was necessarily a bad show. 
I think my issues around the Lena Dunham, you know, phenomenon, yes, exactly what you said, which is that I think you're absolutely right that, uh, you know, it's a success because it was made a success because it's about the people who created it in a sense, right? So it's this kind of insular economy. But the other thing is that... Um, but also, but also, was it a success yeah. if, it, if nobody tuned in? It had like no ratings. I, I had no idea how low the ratings were. But didn't it get... I thought it was a success. Let me see. I'm going to Google that. No, the uh, ratings sucked. And they, they stealth, they stealth canceled it. Did a cancellation that wasn't really a cancellation. They acted Ooh. like, um, oh, it's gonna we're gonna give it two more years and it's gonna end. But what it really was was they didn't just want to say it was canceled because it's kind of putting egg on your face. Oh, I see what critical. you mean. Yes, I see some. I'm so sorry. I apologize again, but I, I'm I'm googling as we speak and it says why ratings didn't matter for HBO's girls and as an article in Forbes. But but you see you see the wow. illusory thing where yeah. you almost assumed they had ratings. That's what yeah, I did. Yeah, I, I did too. I assume no, no. The thing was uh, all these things flop like. Slave yeah. play just flopped. Slave play just flopped. You would have no idea from the buzz. But but with Broadway, it's harder because everything is public. Somebody DM'd me and they said, um, you know, slave play is like a total flop, right? I said, no way. So then I I they showed me the the website to look, and sure enough, I looked. It was doing terrible. It was like in the bottom three all the time. But you would think based the articles, it was doing great. But he's an influencer himself. He's one of those people. He's very good in the internet. And the theory is that they got him because he would generate his own buzz. He's just really good at getting in rooms. He kind of has a vibe to me, like the character of Will Will Smith in uh, Six Degrees of Separation type of thing. Or um, Mr. Ripley, where he's just good at being around like power and money and, and, and this stuff. And basically... It's worked out good for him because now he he's got a new movie that he's a co screenwriter of. Uh, it's it's uh, called Lola or something, mm-hmm. but it's about. But listen, to this this movie is that Sundance. Have you heard about this movie? No. Um, uh, it's based on a Twitter thread. <laughs> it's a Sundance movie that. <laughs> I'm sorry. We are officially in fucking dystopia. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Zola, Zola is what it's called. It was this popular 140 tweet Twitter thread that got optioned because it went viral, and then he oh. uh, got himself attached as a screenwriter. So hold on, I'm going to send you a link right now if you look in the in the in the room in the chat room okay. that we have. And, yeah and uh, yeah so so it's that it's that sundance and it's getting rave reviews and i refuse to believe it's good i just think it's just <laughs> everyone but i think with the lena dunham stuff right like these writers they want to be in her shoes so right. they want her to but, succeed because right. they want to be the next lena dunham but and a, right yeah. but mm-hmm. here's the thing and i've been meaning to write this review of her book in a larger context for a long time and i will but I can tell you, reading her book and knowing what I know about her background, etc. I mean, anyone, everyone knows about her background, right? She is. So the illusion, the problem here is that, first of all, I think you get these influencer economies, you get things like Twitter, you know, you get things like Amazon. Let's look at Amazon, for instance, right? So Amazon, you know, takes a while, but now it's successful, etc. But the problem is that when we, is that it also builds up an entire industry of extraordinarily exploitative labor practices. And you can say that about Amazon, you can say that about publishing, you know, you can say that about any industry that has been created by this kind of attention economy. Amazon maybe doesn't count in that sense. But, you know, this this idea of something quick, something fast, something happening very quickly, all that ends up creating very exploitative circumstances. Now, with Lena Dunham, what's interesting, and, and I think this may also be true for the playwright of, um, of 
Slave, slave play. I, I don't know much about his background, but with Lena Dunham, certainly, you know, there's this part in the book where she writes about how she came up with girls, right? And she writes about, and that, but before that, she writes about how she and her friend set up this art show at this, you know, gallery, I think somewhere in Brooklyn. They're always in Brooklyn. So it's probably a gallery in Brooklyn. And she writes, then she writes about how, and then one day, you know, we were sitting around in our crappy jobs at this, you know, this store that we were both working at. Um, and then we came up with this idea and then we pitched it and it got sold. So it makes it seem like, oh yeah, that's all you need is you need a great idea. But what it completely leaves out, of course, is Alina Dunham's background, her family. Yes, her nepotism. Right, exactly. Her parents are both extremely well-known artists who have been well-known artists for several decades before she was born, right? She is part and parcel. She has a lot of friends in the entertainment industry. She had that before she became famous. You know, every actress on that show, all four of them yes. are products of nep nepotism, yes. right? Yes, they're yeah. all children of very famous, uh, of very famous, very, very famous. And I think what we want to do at this point is, you know, with, listeners might be listening to us and saying, well, so you all sound like you're really bitter about this. And the point is not that we're bitter about the nepotism. What we're trying to prove, both of us, is what we're trying to show, both of us, is that a lot of this, even this illusory and seemingly new influencer economy, right? It is still built, the success of all of that is still built upon ancient traditions <laughs> of nepotism, of exploitation of labor, right? Of shutting out people who don't belong to certain kinds of, you know, certain Gate strata of society, gatekeeping, etc. So what's fascinating is you have these brand new economies that are actually operating on ancient, and I mean that word quite literally, like these, these traditions of, you know, influence and, and nepotism, all of that go back centuries. <laughs> We've all perfected it in, in different cultures. Uh, I find that fascinating, and I find it fascinating that no one's paying attention to that. So everyone thinks that, oh, this is all very new and liberatory, because now, look, you don't need to be anyone. You know, all you need to do is, you know, come up with a new way of threading your eyebrows and make that go viral on Instagram. <laughs> and there you go. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think the worst thing to be is be a middle of the road influencer, because you have the ones who just basically it's not working. They're not getting followers or just tweeting or streaming into the ether. And then you have the ones who are like the lucky 5% who make the millions or whatever. But I think like the ones who are like in the middle where they get famous enough to be recognized, but not actually making the money. So it's like, you know, at the, uh, they had an article about that about like these middle of the road influencers so this girl she's like working at her uh job as a movie usher and then people uh showing up to the movie theater are like wait you're here <laughs> what's 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 going on like you know i'll ask something else let's say we were bitter okay say we were bitter <laughs> does that make us wrong like that's another I thing against my nerves it, it, like, like, mm -hmm. what does it matter like like well, like say mm -hmm. i was the most bitterest person Right. On Earth. No. You know, like, I never understand, even understand like, that, that mindset. Okay. If someone said, hey, you know, mm -hmm. you're bitter and you being bitter has, has you making this huge mistake. And here's X, Y and Z of why you're wrong and how uh, your bitterness. Is. I think it matters. So here's how I think about it. Um, it matters when, for instance, I whether in myself or in friends. For, and, you know, we're always better at advising our friends than ourselves. Right. But when I find yeah. some friends of mine, if, if I find, for instance, a friend, you know, being angry and depressed, a lot of us get very depressed. You know, we're all looking for jobs. We're all looking for opportunities, etc. And people get depressed and upset. I think the difference is, I think a friend of mine put it differently when I said something 
talking about, I don't want to seem envious. And he said, well, there are two kinds of envy. There's a productive envy where you're saying, wait, I want what this person has and I want to figure out how to get what that want. If I want, if I want, if it's something that I need and want, I want to figure out how to get it as opposed to, you know, I just want that person to die <laughs> or, you know, I hate yeah. that person. So I think there's a, that question of, you know, distinctions between a distinction between two kinds of envy is also useful in terms of thinking about bitterness. And I think bitterness, though, I think, honestly, I mean, I really try to not get bitter. And I'm always upset when I, you know, might rail, find myself railing against someone and I try to talk to friends about it. Because I think bitterness just puts you, it just draws you into the swamp from which I know bitter people. Here's my example. Yeah. When I was a lecturer at UIC, you know, I, I, when I was an adjunct, I did it for three years, and there's a reason why these days I always tell people three years should be your maximum. Once you go beyond three years, you want to become an embittered, horrible person. Because I was there among people, there were these adjuncts around me who had been doing it for like, you know, 20 odd years. And they kept hanging on, thinking, this year, you know, someone's going to give you know, we'll do this and then maybe they'll hire me as a full-time professor here. If I keep doing this, if I keep sucking up to the right people, etc. And then I was in a room with them one day and there was so much bitterness and anger in the room. And I looked at them and I thought, I just don't want to become these people. And yeah, that's good. when I went, yeah. And that's when I went to, you know, a couple of my mentors in the department. And I said, you know, I, I just, I, I, I don't want to return. I mean, there was this whole thing about our contracts will be up for renewal. I was not among the first people to be renewed, but even then I went back and I knew I would be, but I went back and I said, I just don't even want my name to be in the pool anymore because I don't want to do that. I don't want to be, I don't want to become one of these people. I do think bitterness, I, I, I worry when I see people turning bitter. And I don't know, I don't think the alternative is to be happy about the fact that life is handing you a lot of shit. I think we just have to figure out, I think as friends, we have to sort of rally around each other and say, okay, look, obviously things are shitty. The system sucks. Um, what can we do to get you, obviously, you know, to get you to a different place in life, but also to get you thinking about it differently. Don't become bitter is what I always tell people. I always yeah, worry see, when I see that. Yeah, see, I agree with you. But the problem is, see, you're talking about bitterness as if it's a good state of mind to have or a positive emotion or whatever. But these people, they're not bringing up your bitterness out of any concern they're not saying hey uh you sound bitter and i'm worried about you you know oh, no, they not. don't give a, they don't give no, a fuck about you i don't yeah but they, see, i don't they, give a fuck they, about they, that yeah yeah they're just saying that you're like i want to make sure i'm not saying that i endorse being bitter i'm not saying that uh anyone of us that are making these observations are bitter but my point is they're bringing up bitterness not out of any well well two things first they don't have any concern about the state of the people who are bitter and what it's doing to them, you know. But I guess I don't really care about them. I guess those are not the people I care about, to be honest with you. So I oh, guess, yeah. Yeah, when you were talking about, you know, bitterness, etc. I really, so again, I think this is the problem when we think about our lives in relation to forces that have nothing to do with us. Like, I think those are people on Twitter. Those are people on Facebook, you know, and I have a lot of people I've never met on Facebook, on Twitter, whom I actually really love and adore. I, I, I know how to make connections with people whom I don't meet. And that's, so there are those. So I'm not saying that none of those people matter. What I'm saying is the kinds of people who might come out and, you know, blah, blah, blah. You're, I, those people I don't care about. Like, I just block them. So I think that's the other problem is that a lot of us these days, it seems to me, are attuned to thinking about our communities 
in ways that might, and I don't mean to sound all lectury and monetary, but you know, I don't know if that's really productive. You know, I guess my attitude is, listen, the people whom you're close to might be people you haven't met, but there are people whom you know whom to trust. You know, there's a circle around you that you keep, like a protective circle. Everyone else can just go fuck off and go to hell. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, my thing is, I feel like things like bitterness or whatever should be brought up in terms of like your soul or your spirituality or what it does to you or you know your your well your mental well-being you know i totally agree with that like what i don't like is the smarm like the disingenuous oh yeah fuck them fuck them all but, 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 <laughs> but the reason why it bothers me too is because this crowd themselves are actually very bitter too but the oh, difference yes. is they're bitter in service of this influence system that they want to be a part of so for example if you look at some of the things that we're talking about like the, some of the people who are mad at uh my american american dirt or people who are mad at this book um my dark vanessa and stuff uh which is another controversy uh, my dark vanessa was this controversy where this woman without actually reading the book herself decided <laughs> that a white woman plagiarized uh her book right. and got like a seven figure advance that she should have gotten as a Latina writer. And that this woman only got it because she was white and that she ripped her off. When there was a lot of proof that came out that this woman had been working on it for like seven decades. Year, 12 years or something. Right. Yeah. So, so, something like that. And she claimed to have started when she was a teenager right. or whatever. And that, and the woman admitted who was accusing her of plagiarism, she admitted that she never read the book herself to see how close it was. Yeah. Just saw the premise. This, this is, yeah. This is driving yeah, me but, bonkers. Yeah. Yeah, but when you see an article like that, and she's talking about, she said stuff in it like, you know, on principle, I don't read any book, but the author got a seven... <laughs> Seven figure advance and stuff like that. And That's so stupid. Like all of oh, Stephen was, King, you know, the guy is fucking yeah, yeah, brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she she put she put an article. It appeared in Roxanne Gay's mag. Uh, oh, magazine. Roxanne Gay is a. Uh, oh, never mind. Yeah. Don't get me no, started no, no, on the world's no, no, worst no, writer. Don't worry, we, we can get there. I think, I think she's an example of the, the, the influencer industrial complex uh. herself. But she puts, she kept putting in, the, in her article, there was a seven-figure deal. There was a seven-figure deal. Then she put... What she means is, why didn't I get a seven-figure deal? <laughs> exactly. And she says, I have not read the book and have no interest in that story. Fictionalized, sensationalized. Fuck I typically you. don't read the books that have those kind of advances. Fuck you, bitch. And, and, I'm sorry and, that that was a horrible yeah. thing to say. But I mean, I'm, that just pisses me off. How dare she? How dare she say that? Like how yeah. she's basically saying, I have no qualifications whatsoever to make this judgment, but I will make this judgment because why exactly. didn't I? This is bitterness. I, I completely see your point now. I completely <laughs> see your point. Yeah. I see yeah, what yeah. you mean. I see what you mean. I thought you were talking about, you know, the anonymous hordes who come at you on Twitter, you know, but you're talking yeah. about this kind of fucking bullshit. I that just yeah, makes yeah, me yeah, 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 but, but also double standards because the kind yes. of people that totally she support gets mil- she, yeah yeah what she's saying they won't call her bitter but they don't no. call like people like us bitter right. so it's not really about being bitter what they really right. don't like is that we're criticizing this system right. that they're trying to learn to hack right. and exactly. game right. right whereas she's encouraging the system mm-hmm. she's like she's bitter that she's not allowed to be a gatekeeper she's like I right. want to get in on it now Roxanne Gay Roxanne Gay, I wanted to review her book about... Uh, uh, real quick, I want to say something real yes. quick, just to make sure that people don't misunderstand. Sure. This person I'm quoting is not Roxanne Gay. It's another author whose oh, name okay. is, I think, is, uh, is Wendy something. But 
it w- it appeared on Roxane Gay's website. Roxane Gay uh, published it. I just want to make that clear in case, in case endorsed I endorsed that view. And she has had, yeah, that's that's kind of interesting in itself. That I mean, because I have a blog as well, and if I let someone publish on it, it basically means I'm endorsing that view. So yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what it is. I mean, again, I think yeah, I think there's this. Again, it oh, comes her, back. Her, her to, name is Wendy. Her name is Wendy Ortiz, right. and she published on Roxanne Gay's um, blog. Mm, that, so, yeah, yeah, and Roxanne Gay didn't even vet it. Did not bother to fact check, etc. Um, yeah, that, yeah. I, I, I just want to make that clear thank before you, you continue. For that. Yeah, yeah. That's that's completely. That's yeah. Anyway, if you ever talk about Roxanne Gay, I can just go on about how she's the most untalented writer on the planet. Uh, but that's a whole other. <laughs> I read Bad Feminist. That's like, the one I'm. I'm fine. So, I could not get through it. I, I could to, not get through. Yeah, I was, it was chewing such an my arm. Thing. I was chewing yeah. my arm to try to finish it, and I couldn't. I went through this thing where I was like, I don't want to be unfair to people. So I want to try to read yes, things because maybe here. I'll end up <laughs> I'll end up liking this stuff. So I didn't want to spend money on it. So what I did was went to the New York Library and I, there was no copies. I put it on hold. The hold was like four or five months. Right. That's how on on back order it is. And so I waited four or five months to get the book. It finally arrived, and I was like, "Wow, this is the thing that that is the longest book I ever had to wait for at the New York Library." And they had tons of copies and this is something that i kind of want to say about this too about why it's the fans faults this is what i think happens a lot right and this happened with alina dunham too when all these critics were writing so much about girls there were all these people there was a critic that i used to like called uh, alan Superwall. like i still like like him i just don't read him anymore because i just don't read i read a different type of criticism now but every week he'd be talking about how brilliant it is and then every single week mm. his comments were filled with like alan like i keep trying but what are you doing? I, I'm I'm tr- I love your stuff, but I can't rock with you on this. This thing is just the most navel gazing, mm. boring thing. And his comment section would just keep getting full of that. But eventually, it kind of like petered out. I think people just gave up on the show and just stopped reading those posts. Mm. But the beginning was very contentious. And what was interesting was, and this is what happened a lot. Every single post, there would be a bunch of people who would post in there saying, well, you know, I watch this all the time and it's just like me and my friends and me and my friends marvel about how much it's like us. And that was this weird idea that art was meant to be like a uncritical mirror, mm-hmm. uh, a flattering mirror. Uh, you know, it's not like a window into anything. Like like, like art is, is not a window into something or it's just the most unflattering mirror. It's like a funhouse mirror, but instead of making you look weirder, it makes you look uh, better. So that was just the only level on which these people were engaging mm-hmm. on it with. And I remember in one comment section, somebody even asked, said, okay, so it's like you and your friends. Uh, who gives a fuck? Do you ever think maybe no one cares about you and your friends? Like, like <laughs> why is it why is it being about you and your friends right. supposed to be an endorsement of it? Like, like fuck you and your friends. That's what somebody put. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they were very like, kind of angry, but mm-hmm. they had a good point. <laughs> it was like, yes, why? they did. Right. Have you yeah, considered yeah, but your I friends like, are awful? But I feel like they're bad feminists thing and things like that i think because when i finally saw what the book was about in the title essay and it was just all about it's okay to be a mediocre feminist this is at least the thesis of the book is like hey i don't read any theory i don't really care about stuff my idea of feminism is shipping uh buffy on tumblr you know but does it make me a bad feminist you know what i don't think so and i was like that's the appeal of this it's like it's a permission to be mediocre i it think is, is what right right and i is, think is what a lot of its influencer stuff comes from mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's a sports writer called bill simmons couldn't stand him for years because he just writes these long rambling articles about nothing he's not funny he's not particularly clever but then when i'll keep complaining because my friends are recommending his articles and, he, and i was like you know this is just not good he has no analysis it's just 
Right. It's just about him and his friends going to Vegas half the time. He's always inserting himself into the narrative and all this stuff. He's just like a mediocre white guy, his, his stuff. But then my friend was telling me, oh, we don't understand. He's supposed to be like a message board guy. Like, you know, he's like the regular guy that you see on a message board, but he's writing for the big guys. But it's like, okay, he's writing on the highest level now. He's a multimillionaire. Mm. He's producing shows. Why are we still judging him as an amateur, number one? Number two, wh- why do I want to pay money or spend my time to read someone I can see on the message board, like, but I realized that these people want to believe they could eventually write, like, write on his level. Like, his mediocrity was inspiring. Mm-hmm. They wanted a mirror back. Like, instead of reading something that's like, wow, I don't think I could ever write that way. Uh, but maybe one day I could. Let me see if it inspires me to be better. I think people want things that inspire them to stay as mediocre as they are. Uh, just keep trying and hope that they mm. hit it big. And right. I think that's where a lot of this stuff kind of uh, comes from. I think there's also a long strain of anti-intellectualism in American culture at large, I think. Very true. Uh, you know, hello? Yeah, I agree yeah. with you. Can you hear yeah. me? Yes, yeah. yes. So I, I, I also think that a lot of this has also, I think, to do with the structural changes in, say, academia itself. So even if people, you know, I think by and large, and it's not just universities, I think this is sort of happening in many ways across, you know, um, high schools. And so, I mean, I think in general, there's a, I find Roxanne Gay's particular brand of feminism and his popularity kind of disconcerting. I do think that a significant number of her readers um, will, I think she has a lot of very, I think she has a lot of teen to very young 20s uh, women who are huge fans of her writing. I do. I think, also think, I also think she has a lot of stunted um, middle-aged women. Kind of like, you know, those, you know, those, someone put a tweet once that said, oh, it's time for my family reunion where my smartest nieces and my dumbest aunts will tell me about which which young adult franchise they're most into right now. Mm. And I feel like that's her audience too. Like, you know, right, right. precocious, smart teens, but also kind of dumb, childish, um, middle-aged women. Wow, okay, yeah. Yeah, then I guess that that shoots my theory out of the way. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Tell me no, a theory no, no, anyway. No, no, maybe no, no. maybe mine my is wrong. My only theory was that it wasn't really a theory. I was wondering if maybe she's very popular among a particularly younger set of people who will, I think, hopefully eventually sort of come into more complicated analysis of feminism and the and life itself. I've, I mean, even her sentence structure is appalling. I mean, she's a terrible uh, writer oh, yeah. at that level. She's a lousy yeah. writer at that level. But here's the on, other thing. On even so, craft. But, but I want to say, I want to say, uh, I want to say, I think you're right though, because it's like that guy's tweet said, like it's his brightest nieces. They're going to outgrow it. Like, I think you're right. I think that is part of her appeal. People who are going to, who are young and smart are going to move on to bigger and better Because things. eventually, and I think that's what's going to happen as well with a lot of left writing as well, for instance, you know, a lot of the stuff that I see right now, I think right now, you know, there's a lot of youthful energy around that. But at some point, you know, you move on in life and then you realize, you know what, this kind of skewed, sort of very traditional, weird, lefty perspective isn't really working out in the real world. I need something more complex, etc. That's one thing. But I think the other issue around Roxanne Gay is the trauma economy. I do think that she has plugged into that particular part of the zeitgeist. You know, it's all about, you know the trauma that she has endured um, as a woman of size, but also as a woman who was, you know, abused, right? All of that. And while one is obviously sympathetic to that, I think the other thing is that I, you know, and I I think it dovetailed, right? And obviously she had no role in this necessarily, 
but it hit the zeitgeist at a particular time. And I think it sort of came along the same time as the Me Too movement, just a little before, but it was sort of riding that wave in a way. And now, of course, she is completely riding that particular wave. And I think she's able to... Uh, to use that to her advantage. So I think now she just looks like the perfect figure, just as, you know, you, we could look, I don't know, you know, there are other, all sorts of writers exploit certain particular periods of time in culture. But I think that's where Roxane Gay's popularity comes from. And I don't, but I, this brings me back though to the question of trauma and what we began with right at the very beginning, which was why, what are these narratives and why are those so why they're so popular. And, you know, we're talking about why is it especially women of color, right, who have to constantly mm -hmm. expose themselves, literally and figuratively, uh, you know, to be taken seriously, etc. Whereas those of us, for instance, who don't do that are constantly, you know, shunted aside, um, seen as being too analytical, etc. And I think what you had said about, yes, you know, wanting to, thinking about people of color, not of the mind, but only embodied creatures that's definitely a part of it There's but also, also i think if i think if you're too much of the mind you kind of threaten them because they don't want because think about this if it's true that we are supposedly more in touch with this other stuff i don't know right i don't know if we are <laughs> i'm saying worst case scenario like let's say it's true i don't think it is but i'm saying right. i'm saying in their mind i'm saying from their perspective right. let's say it's true what happens if it turns out that we're as good or better at being smart as well I think white people, even supposedly liberal progressive ones, don't like the idea of white people not being the best in the world. So, like, I think they enjoy this from us on the um, condition that, that we have an implicit promise not to be as smart or smarter than them. So I think it, if you are going to be as smart or smarter than them, it needs to be in service of one of their projects. So like, say I'm a white socialist and they see, oh, this is a brilliant black socialist who happens to believe in all my class reductionism. Right. Yes. Or, hey, this <laughs> yes, is a black yes. liberal who's brilliant, but he just happens to believe in my whole project of Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. Yes. I, I love this guy or, you know, here's this um, black conservatives and he just happens and I'm a conservative. He just happens to all this brilliance just in service of um, repeating how right I am. That's the only uh, space that like you. If you're as smart as them or smarter, but challenging them now, it's like, OK, you're actually in touch with this other side that I, su that I supposedly lack. And, you know, uh, you're as smart as me. What does that make me? No, definitely. I've encountered that actually very often in my own career frequently. No, I, and I, I mean, I, again, this is not bitterness. This is just a statement of fact. I'm fine with where my career is. I'm happy with the readership I have. I'm happy with where I'm going in my own work in, the in terms of how I'm developing my work. But I do know for a fact, um, a hundred and different ways that I am frequently turned aside or ignored precisely because I don't provide this easy, you know, narrative of trauma, of feeling, you know, of basically being a nursemaid to fucking white leftists who just need me to nurture them and, yeah. you know, let them suckle at my tit, basically, you know, of trauma. Uh, so the milk of trauma <laughs> must flow through my breasts for me to be oh, legitimized so by them. So I do think that's absolute. I completely agree with you on that. And I think that, unfortunately, um, a lot of people of color also enable that. You know, I've been, I've had a lot of people of color d actually kind of demonize me or shut me out of various venues and so on, uh, precisely because I challenge those narratives. So I think all of that is true. Um, 
And I don't know what the solution to that is for myself. All I'll say is I do think that a lot. And I know I know there are publishers and others listening to this probably and just smirking because they think this is also stupid and naive. But I think that what's really important as a writer is to figure out who and what your readership is and to nurture that readership in terms of developing it and to keep producing work that has a certain integrity that your readers will support, you know? I will say, I don't think it's naive at all. And the the reason I say that is because a lot of this attention-grabbing stuff, like I I told you, if you actually dig in, this is something I've started doing is not accepting any narrative at face value, like when you dig in, it's not making that much money. It's really no, not. It's, it's just not. getting a lot. It's just getting a lot of attention. Like what the only person that helps is the influencer because they seem to keep failing upwards, you know, and getting <laughs> bigger and better deals. But even that has its limit. You can only fail upwards to a certain point. And then a lot of times they just get the, the newest influencer. Like I was looking at this um, documentary from, I think, uh, 2012. 2010 about influencers it was called generation like it's on youtube now so i'm pretty good one thing that was interesting about it was how many influencers in it were, were already gone even though they were like riding high at the time like it's it's uh i think it has this uh limit and that's what kind of makes it soul crushing too is i think you have to keep constantly finding a new way to whore or a new a new avenue you can never just rest on your laurels or you're going to get um uh, phased out or replaced it is know? it is a very uh it's a very stressful stressful position to be in also you're not 21 forever or 26 or whatever it is you, you know at some point um uh, those things do catch up with you physically as well uh, but i guess also i think in terms of you know, how we might start to change this. Again, you know, I return to writers and readers really needing to take stock and reevaluate, for instance, where do we get our publications from, right? What, what are we reading and where are we reading it? You know, are, we, are we, for instance, supporting places that we know, for instance, don't pay their writers, right? Are we yes, doing that? that are yeah, we supporting, structures. Yes, exactly. Are we supporting places that for instance let's look at the guardian you know the main one of the major newspapers on the planet right now perhaps second to the new york times but it keeps begging for money because it says you know we're, we're not making enough money etc and i want to look at them and go well motherfuckers maybe if you didn't turn out like five fucking stupid gobsmacking stupid pieces of shit op-eds every five minutes maybe i would respect you a little bit more i don't mind the op-eds there are some op-eds my friend nathan j robinson (laughs) among them you know who i like a lot etc but when you go to the guardian page it's basically a fitted pile of op-eds right and most of them are not are not really contributing very much to our larger understanding of the world so i think readers also need to start striking back at publications and saying you know what we're kind of tired of this Where's the investigative journalism that we actually respected? I mean, for instance, The Guardian, to my, you know, our deep embarrassment as Chicagoans, The Guardian is the one that exposed the infamous home and square prison in the fucking middle of Chicago that no one about in Chicago had really thought about or knew about. The Guardian yeah. ran this fantastic investigative series on home and square, right? So The Guardian, that's what I respect. Um, there are places like The Intercept, you know, that are also doing, I think, uh, really interesting investigative journalism that needs to be encouraged. And I think, again, they pay their people. 
you can't good, get good journalism if you don't pay people. What irritates me about writers, I mean, sorry, mm -hmm. I'll just, there's one more last thing quickly is that what oh, irritates oh, do me. Do as many more things oh, as you okay. want. What <laughs> really, You're the guest. Go, go out, go what off. What really off. irritates me about all of this, right, the culture industry, the, econ the attention economy, et cetera, is that I think a lot of people who, like me, you know, like writers, people who are producing cultural work, are reluctant to look at those who are consuming our work and to really challenge them. And I constantly challenge readers. I keep saying, stop reading fucking garbage. Also, but is there, stop, is there money in the, Yeah, stop circulating. Is there money in well, no, but yeah, I mean, stop circulating. Stop circulating pieces of shit on Medium, which are written for free for the most part, uh, etc. You know, stop circulating this shit. Stop circulating stupid, vapid op-eds, which have maybe one sentence that's, you know, that might be worth it, etc. But I just think that people, and again, I know that people are also stuck at lousy jobs. You know, you're spending most of the day pretending to be at your computer doing work and is mindless. And all you can do is just keep going through, you know, this garbage that floats up on your Facebook feed. So I get that. Uh, but I just, I don't know. I mean... No, I totally agree with you, but I feel like it's like a reinforcing loop that no one knows at which stage of the loop to break the cycle because it's so tough because it's like, I had this recent book that by Yasha Levine that mm, uh, we had yes. like, yeah, yeah, we had hit him on. It's called Surveillance Valley. Yes, and I then, read it. Yes. Yeah. What that's really interesting about Surveillance Valley was, and I forgot to bring this up during the episode, it astounded me. Oh, the week before, we had somebody who was on talking about the development of the inside of the internet, like the internet communities and mm -hmm. how communities morphed and yeah. all these different disparate communities and 4chan and something awful and Tumblr and all these communities kept morphing into other communities. I was struck by the level to which the real life formation of uh, Silicon Valley and the internet as a as a structure was so much like the formation and evolution of the inside of the internet, which is just just this wild free for all of grifters, military, cops, agents, marketers, corporations, just all just trying to cobble together this kind of uh, culture. Like like the actual physical internet and the inside of the internet are both kind of the same thing. This this kind of monolith that you can't not monolith, this kind of wild, wild west thing that you can't really get a finger on. So much of it is murky and whatever, but a glut, just a glut of information, content, conflicting stuff, nebulous ties. I feel like that Silicon Valley type of mindset has ended up permeating everything. As in journalism now is just all about, like they're all following the same model. Like, hey, here's a scheme. Let's not actually sell anything the old way. That's passe. You know, the same way the early Silicon Valley companies were like, hey, profits are passe. What we're going to do is sell ads and get market share. And, and then the profits will come. It's always this kind of thing. Like later on, it's going to happen. Journalism is like an app company now where it's like, hey, we're going to offer everything for free. We're going to let people write for free, but they're going to get paid by clicks. Like, hey, uh, we'll pay you this low thing, but if you get a million clicks. Right, you get one get cent. <laughs> no. yeah, 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 exactly. One cent per click. Uh, I, I've, I've received that awful one. Yeah, so I know what that looks like. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and the problem is you can't walk this stuff back. No. So it's like, right, uh, it's right. everything is kind of becoming these weird Ponzi scheme type mm. no, ways of getting right. paid. 
that are not normalized. But then the other thing is, and I realized this as a consumer, right? Somebody pointed this out to me. When they pointed out, it made me really realize my complicity as a consumer. Like I was trying to click Washington Post mm. and it was paywalled. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, damn, this motherfucker is always paywalled. Someone said to me, you realize all newspapers used to be paywalled. Exactly, it was called exactly. R- right? No one remembers and, and, this. Yeah, yeah. Yes. They're, they're, yes. And I'm like, that's a great point. And yes, the point I, that they're trying to make yeah. was the consumers now feels right, entitled, entitled. To, to, to freeness. I had this argument literally yesterday with someone on a wall on Facebook because they took an article from behind the Chicago Tribune paywall and posted it on their wall. And this journalist friend of mine popped up and said, hey, don't do that. You know, like that's basically said, he said, look, you're stealing. You can't do that. It's really not kosher. Please don't do that. And then I popped up as well. And I tried to explain the economics of it. Right. And I said, look, this is what happens. You know, this is why journalists don't get paid enough. If you want really good investigative journalism, newspapers need to be able. And then this guy turns to me and says something like what? And they all said, well, if I can't afford a... So are you saying that if I can't afford a subscription, I can't read this article? And I said, and I said exactly what your friend said to you. I said, do you realize that at one point you had to walk down to the newsstand to either buy a paper or get it delivered to you or go to the library and read it? Yep, yep. And, 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 no and, also- one, and that was only 10, 11, 12 years ago. Yeah, there was, no, there was no idea that you were entitled to. I was in there, but they, they fell into this Silicon Valley-ish type of model. It's like, hey, don't worry about the actual market fundamentals of selling it for more than what it costs you to make it. No, don't worry about that. Just get the content out there. Content, you get it out there. The other word. And you, what's that? The content. That's content, the other word. Yes, exactly. We had this joke when we started this podcast that we're like, you know, everyone else is a content provider. This podcast is actually a context provider. <laughs> yes. That's gonna be our, oh, that's lovely. That's gonna be, oh, you should do something with that. I mean, yeah, we were saying that's, that's going to be our tagline. Yes. Uh, we never did follow up on that, but we, but we should. But <laughs> that's yeah, a great there's tagline. All, there's all content and no context yeah. to, um, to anything. Yes. And, uh, yeah. No, but I'm so glad you raised that about, yes, exactly, the paywall issue. Right. People have forgotten yeah, that you, you used to have to pay for that shit, which is why mm-hmm. you would get amazing journalism that... Exactly. Yeah, that's what I was going to say have, next. Is, you it, won't it, get Watergate today. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not yeah. When, because not if you're fucking clipping Washington Post articles from behind the paywall. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and you're making a glut of stuff because to generate clicks, to generate clicks, uh, they need to generate a lot of content because if you only have if you only have a handful of articles how many clicks can you generate from a handful of articles so now so now there's a glut of content I had a subscription to Washington Post till I think for only about a month or two and it was a super cheap subscription and I thought well you know so many people quote the Washington Post I should stay up with it and I just got tired of it I just like you know what this is just one op-ed after another and I don't really care I know and you gotta sit through so many bad ones to get to the good ones exactly so I just you know I uh, so I just uh, I just got rid of my subscription this and I read I think so I go between the LA Times and the New York Times the New York Times I get for a very very cheap rate I get it for four bucks a month um, and yeah, yeah I had that one too yeah, yeah. so a, that's, a dollar a week yeah exactly exactly so yeah I mean yeah. I think and, and, and someone told me the same thing you did they're like that's also why you should stop complaining about clickbait if you don't want to pay for anything then you deserve the clickbait you get and I'm like you know that's a good point right exactly yeah if you don't want to pay for anything all you'll get is clickbait exactly All right, y'all. So 
that is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good.